just so you understand, it's the single greatest witch hunt in American history, probably in history, but in American history. Really, bitch? On today's episode, we're going back in time to when America was just a baby girl. And don't come at me on Twitter. America's not a girl. In 1692, a group of young girls began exhibiting strange behavior and complained about being pinched with pins. These young women would grow up to be the cast of The Real Housewives of New York. A doctor found no evidence of any ailments on these girls, but in 1692, doctors literally knew jack shit, so it could only mean one thing. Witches had come to Massachusetts. On today's episode, we're going straight to Salem to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start accusing everyone around them of being a witch. We're also going to discuss why America continues to be fascinated by the macabre and also continues to be fascinated by blaming women and immigrants for, well, everything. I'm your host, Mark Brennan Rosenberg, and this is Fucked Up History. Today, I'm super fortunate to be joined by Rachel Christ, the Director of Education at the Salem Witch Museum. Now, Rachel is my go-to gal for all things Salem Witch Trials, and if you ever find yourself randomly in Salem after a long bender, definitely check out the Salem Witch Museum. It's an incredible resource, and they do really amazing things there. Now, Rachel's awesome. The one thing I wasn't really thrilled with her about was that uh, she didn't watch Days of Our Lives when Marlena was possessed by the devil, which I thought was like a very on-brand thing for her, but apparently she was not interested in that. Anyway, let's get started. In order to understand what happened during the Salem Witch Trials, it's important to grasp what life was like in colonial America at the time. If you're the type of person who gets stressed out because you lose Wi-Fi on the subway, you wouldn't have lasted a day in Salem in 1692. I'll let Rachel explain. You know, this is not a great time to be a common person. Um, It's not even really a great time to be a wealthy person. Just the quality of life is not fantastic. In regards to a typical day, you're just laboring the whole time. So you're waking up at the crack of dawn, Um, There's women's work and there's men's work at this time, and you really want to have as many children as possible because they are your labor force. (laughs) Several hundred years later, a young upstart by the name of Kris Jenner would perfect this business model of using children to make money and form a global empire. So reproducing is key at this period. So... Um, People actually aren't getting married as early as we think they were. People weren't getting married in their teens, not even in their early 20s usually. It's usually around like 27. So it's it's later. It's more what we would expect today, actually. So, But once you were married, you would settle down somewhere. You'd try to start a farm. Ideally, you're near a water source if you're in Salem because that means that you're going to be connected to everything so water is super super important and it really makes or breaks you but you wake up the men go out into the fields and they're working in the fields for most of the day and that's incredibly hard manual labor you know you're planting you're bringing in the crops you're tending to the livestock Um, and this is you know as I said something you're doing all day long the women are inside doing all the domestic work so making the food preserving food for the winter 
making the clothes, fixing the clothes, cleaning the clothes. Women actually, um, women's work was pretty dangerous in that their lives revolve around a fireplace, the big central fireplace in your home. And um, actually a huge hazard for women during this time was their skirts catching on fire. So you see women um, dampening skirts before they start their work sometimes so that they wouldn't catch on fire. But yeah, and you worked until sundown, you came inside, you had your evening meal, and then you would spend the rest of the night praying usually, or you know, you might read from the Bible. Most families did. The Puritans are an extremely literate group. They're one of the most literate societies in the Western world ever, um, you know, excluding where we are now, obviously. But, you know, for this time period, everyone was expected to read. Men, women, children, slaves were sometimes taught to read, servants were taught to read, and it's because the idea was you read the Bible. And then they were also expected to attend church services, usually twice a week. So you often had a Thursday lecture you would go to, which was kind of a topical lecture. And then you had your Sunday services, which were all day long. So you had morning services for several hours, a break for lunch, and then afternoon services for several hours, um, which sounds supremely challenging, especially during this time because these were not heated meeting houses they were attending these services in. They were very, very hot in the summer and very, very cold in the winter, and you're sitting on these wooden benches for hours and hours and hours. So we can kind of imagine how horrible that would be now. So in general, you know, they made the most of it, but it definitely was a very hard life. Did you hear that? Was that a door opening or the ghost of a witch? I think you know the answer to that. All of this sounds pretty awful, but most especially the church part. I would have lasted a day. By 1692, witch trials had faded out in Europe, but much like the Spice Girls and the Beatles hundreds of years later, the fad came to America after the initial craze had simmered down years earlier in Europe. Witch accusations tend to happen during times when um, there's a lot of stress and fear in the air, and that's very true for Europe. So the European witch trials, to back up a couple steps, are happening primarily in the mid-1500s, so the 16th century. There are kind of waves of prosecutions, but the biggest one is happening at that time. And this is a time when Europe is just a complete mess. So they have um, massive religious wars that are going on, the Protestant Reformation happens, and then the Catholic Counter-Reformation happens. People are killing each other over religion. They're arguing about, you know, the very nature of reality, essentially, which you can imagine would be very confusing for everybody. And if you're on the wrong side at the wrong time, it's just, as I said, a mess. They have something called the Little Ice Age, which is taking place, which is also affecting America in the 17th century. And that essentially means there's this period of a couple of hundred years where you have very unusual weather patterns. So there are very very harsh winters, very hot summers, unexplainable droughts. Things are just, you know, it's making it really hard to bring in crops in a timely fashion. So it's causing these mass famines. There's an economic crisis. There's massive inflation during this period. So suddenly money is dropping in value. And there's a, there's more, you know, it's just like everything that could be going wrong it is going wrong. The Black Plague had just finished up the massive sweep of Europe, but it's still... Plague is still around. People are still scared of plague and disease. So basically, when there's this time of great fear and great tension, what usually tends to happen in most societies, not even just focusing on Europe, is people look around and they say, 
okay, I don't have a logical, tangible answer as to why my quality of life is getting worse. Something must be going wrong. And they, they find someone or something to blame, which is called a scapegoat. Wow, I honestly can't imagine that happening today. Hmm. So in this case, the scapegoat is a witch, which is a perfect scapegoat for the problems during this time, because witches are this new concept in the 15th century. So people don't really start talking about a witch, um, you know, to use quotations, until around the 1480s is when you really started appearing um, in books. So the elite are talking about this new concept, this new worry, this new kind of heretic who is a person who makes a pact with the devil in return for magical powers. And now everybody's arguing about what these magical powers actually are, how they can be employed. Some people believe they're one thing, some people believe they're another thing, but this idea starts to permeate through society. So by the time we get to the 16th century, They've trickled on down, and the common people are believing in it now, too. So suddenly, when you have these mass famines, something weird happens with the weather, your um, community is wrecked with disease or with war, you can say, okay, I know that there's this evil person who can manipulate the world around us, who can harness supernatural powers if they you know, pay the ultimate price and make a pact with the devil— who is it that is doing this? I, I believe that this is why my cow is sick or my wife, you know, just lost her leg. It must be a witch. So that leads to this big period of accusation. So by the time you get to the 17th century, Europe has settled down a little bit, comes to America. We start up in America. Massachusetts Bay is founded in 1630. So by the time you get to 1692, we've been here for a little while. But these are all people who, for the most part, either came here directly from England or their parents did. They all have these very strong English traditions or French traditions or from wherever they're coming from specifically. So they're all very much aware that witchcraft is real. You know, this is what their elites are telling them. It's real. It's everywhere. It could happen. Keep your eye out. If something weird is going on, it could be the work of the devil. So in 1692 specifically, much like we see in Europe, it's just a mess. So um, New England's going through a lot of really serious changes. Massachusetts Bay had lost its charter in uh, the 1680s, which essentially means England had been like, all right, Massachusetts Bay, you're getting a little too independent over there. You're starting to do things that we don't really like. We're going to take away your charter, so your laws, basically. We're going to rework them to something we're more comfortable with and then give it back to you. So everybody's very angry about this. And it means that from 1684 to 1691, they didn't really have laws. So they didn't know exactly what England was going to prescribe as their legal system. So that's not to say that they were living in this lawless existence, but people are arguing about how do you prosecute someone? We don't know. The courts are kind of up in the air right now. So a lot of people were just ending up in jail and just sitting in jail. So it's, as I said, a mess. So clearly there's a lot of shit going down in Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1692. I know it sounds kind of boring, everything that Rachel said, but it's important to know these things because this is what leads up to the Salem Witch Trials. And this is also a lot of this quote unquote boring stuff. They never really teach you in school. They just kind of teach you that it happened. So I thought it was really interesting to hear what led up to the Salem Witch Trials. But then they also have this little ice age, so they're having really hot summers, really cold winters. And then on top of everything else, there are these war going, wars going on with Native Americans that are causing these 
bloody, bloody casualties on both sides. So this has been going on in Maine, really, in the northern frontier, but it's starting to get closer and closer and closer to the settled societies in Mass Bay. So people are really scared. They're hearing these horrific stories of these wars where people are getting scalped and people are getting murdered and people are getting murdered in the middle of the night and all of this horrifying stuff. Whatever the, you know, our interpretations of that war is today, you know, you have to imagine it from the settlers' point of view. They're just absolutely petrified of they could get murdered at any point by these people that they view as servants of the devil, and that's what they're being told. So, And a lot of people who are settling in Salem and in Boston and Essex County are fleeing from the Native American wars, and a lot of them have PTSD. In fact, you see that very much so in 1692 in Salem. Historian uh, Tad Baker, who's a professor at Salem State, refers to this time as a perfect storm. It's just like everything that can be going wrong is going wrong. So in, six, in January of 1692, when Betty and Abigail Paris start exhibiting really strange behavior, start screaming, start falling around on the ground, start basically exhibiting these seizure-like symptoms, people are looking around and they're saying, okay, we don't have a medical explanation for this. It doesn't appear to be any of the diseases that we know of. This could very well be the work of the devil. The devil has come to Massachusetts, and they basically just lose it and there's a mass hysteria so there's clearly a lot of political economic and judicial strife going on at the time when suddenly two girls who sound about as difficult to deal with as delta burke on the set of designing women began exhibiting strange behavior that leads to accusations the main circle of accusers the girls who are accusing the most people during this time are all very young they're approximately from like 20 to 10 as young as seven, six, but most of them are in their teen years. Ann Putnam Jr. is, she's 12. So she's in her early teens and she's the one who accuses the most people during that time. But, so these are teenage girls. So something that you kind of have to remember, again, going back to life in colonial America, think about what the life would have been like for a teenage girl during this time. You have no voice, no rights. You're expected to essentially be in a state of semi-pregnancy from the time you get married to the time you are no longer able to have children. So you're going to have maybe as many as 15 children oh, in your oh, life. Jesus. And probably half of them are going to die. Who very well may die in childbirth. And it is not a choice. You are going to be pregnant as many times as possible. Just taking a moment and thinking about that, that is horrifying to imagine and so if you're a teenager you're starting to assume these adult responsibilities you're starting to kind of picture your life as an adult and you also at this time are faced with a lot of men are dying in the wars with native americans so there's a shortage of men so you might actually not even be able to get married which means instead of owning your own home you're going to be a servant in someone else's life for a teenage girl at this time extremely stressful that's not to excuse anything that happens but just to give us kind of a picture of these girls everything about living during this time period sounds absolutely awful but what happened when these girls started flipping out first affliction started in january the trials themselves the actual trials start in june there are pre-examinations from march until june and then the actual trials begin in june and then they're over in october so this is a pretty short period of time when you really think about it everybody's out of jail for the most part about a year and a half later so it's a pretty short period of time yeah so i mean abigail williams again like everybody else we 
we know so little about her you know she's living in this terrible household is living in samuel paris's house samuel paris is by all accounts the worst he is very grumpy guy he had tried his hand at being a merchant didn't really do well in that decided to become a minister kind of bouncing around trying to find his parish he ends up in salem village salem village has had a really hard time keeping a minister they have had a couple of candidates by this point. They've had three candidates by this point, and all of them have been gone pretty quickly. And it's because nobody in the community can agree on who should be the minister. I like this person. No, I don't. I do. I don't. And if you don't like the minister, what you do is you just stop paying his salary. If fucking only we could get rid of awful elected officials this way today. Mm. And at this time, a minister's salary are useful things like firewood and food, the things that a minister is not supposed to be going out and having to do for himself because he's serving the community, and in return, the community provides him with those life-saving things. So if the community decides they don't like you and they just stop paying your salary, that means that it's the middle of the winter and you don't have any firewood. So that's very stressful, and during um, Samuel Paris's time in the Salem Village community, he becomes the center of this fight between and people who want him and people who don't want him. So Betty and Abigail are living in this home, hearing all of this. Samuel responds by just starting to preach these really scary sermons every week about the devil and fire and brimstone, and it's extreme even for a Puritan. So these girls know what's going on. You know, we tend to forget that kids listen. Kids know what their parents are talking about. Can you imagine living in a world where you're fighting with your friends and neighbors constantly over whether or not you agree with your elected officials? Must be terrible. Of the first three women accused of witchcraft, one confessed to being a witch. Now, confessing to a crime that was considered so heinous at the time is about as confusing to me as seeing a black person at a Trump rally. Rachel explains. The first three people who are accused of witchcraft are kind of these like classic examples of people who get accused first. So like I said, we're talking about scapegoats here. Until we make some sort of massive breakthrough that proves the devil and magic are in fact real, we're gonna, we approach this as being a witch is not a crime anyone can actually commit. Nobody can actually cause rainstorms or poke a hole in a pop it and hurt somebody you know these are this is an imagined crime that's put on innocent people so like as is true with scapegoats throughout history the people that you accuse first tend to be the people in society that make you the most uncomfortable so that usually was the poor beggars people who had done something taboo like have a child before marriage um, economically independent women so women who had money without a husband makes everybody really uncomfortable but so these first three women, they all fit that stereotype very, very well. So their names are Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tichiba. So Sarah Good is this beggar who is, um, she's had a really hard lot in life. Her father had committed suicide, which ended up really damaging her marriage prospects. And then she had trouble inheriting what money she was supposed to get. And then she marries a guy, he dies and leaves her with even more debt, so then she marries someone else, and she, she's dealt a really hard card. But so, prior to 1692, she and her husband have kind of just been, you know, in the mercy of the charity of others. They've been bouncing house to house, asking to be given food and so on, but by all accounts, she was a very hard house guest. 
she was very argumentative. Um, she tended to, if she, you gave her something and she felt like she deserved more, she would grumble and mutter under her breath as she walked away, which at the time people interpreted as her trying to curse you. She was known to have a pipe that she would smoke and she got kicked out of somebody's house at one point because they thought she was going to burn down their barn smoking in their barn. So she's this great community scapegoat because nobody really likes her, it seems. So basically, this woman was Dupree from You, Me, and Dupree. You've got Sarah Osborne, who also has a pretty rough lot in life. She had been widowed, and then she made the wild decision to marry one of her servants, which is very you know, socially odd during this time. People definitely look at her oddly. And then on top of that, she also hadn't been to church for a while because she had been sick during the winter. So, but again, to Puritans, they're like, you haven't been to church? Ah. So she's, again, a pretty easy scapegoat. And then the third woman is Tichiba, who is the slave in Reverend Paris's house. So she's a perfect scapegoat just because she's not white. So... Right off the bat, um, they used to, at this time, they're calling the devil the black man. So it's, you know, people of color, really of any color during this time, are seen as the other evil. They are Satan's in Satan's league. You know, they shouldn't be trusted, even though they have slaves working in their home and so on. Particularly for Puritans, they're definitely viewing these people suspiciously. So when Tichuba's accused, again, makes perfect sense to everybody. So the three of them are brought into a courtroom, and Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne both maintain their innocence. They say, I have no idea what you're talking about. I am not a witch. I have never practiced witchcraft in my life. But then Tichuba is tried, and she maintains her innocence initially, but then she cracks and basically says, you've got me. I am a witch. I'll give you as much information as you want. These are my accomplices. This is how long I've been a witch. I'm so sorry. So, you know, the million dollar question is why does she confess? Because this really is one of the big moments that triggers, continues to trigger a panic. And there's a couple of events like this throughout the trials that keep the hysteria going. But again, you have to look at it from her perspective. She is a slave woman in this time. She is Nobody to speak for her. Obviously, her master is not going to speak for her. He's one of the people who thinks she might be guilty. She has no way of defending herself, no way of proving her innocence. Um, she's just at the mercy of everyone around her. So she may have thought that if she confessed, she would at least be valuable to them because they would need her insight. And what ends up happening, which is unusual, this doesn't happen in really any other witch trials, um, at least in America for sure, is the people who confess are the ones who actually end up living through the trials. Now, it's really counterintuitive. All the people who are executed are the people who maintain their innocence. It's not until much, much later in October, right before they're about to disband the trials and you know start up with a new court, that people who are confessed begin to get convicted. So people kind of start to figure out midway through the trials that if I follow Tichuba's example and I confess, they're going to need me, they're going to need me for information, and I'm going to be kept alive in jail, and maybe I'll be able to wait this out, and the madness will pass. Shortly after, our first three quote-unquote outcast friends were accused of witchcraft, several others were accused as well. But the new accusations were against women who were considered upstanding citizens. I asked Rachel, were people not calling bullshit? They do later on, for sure. I mean, Rebecca Nurse's family is definitely, from the get-go, saying, what are you talking about? She's this pious woman. She's never had a wrinkle in her record. What's interesting is when Martha Corey gets accused, 
because Martha Corey is, um, she's a fully communing member of the church, which means that she's passed this Puritan test to become a member of the church. So that does put her into this kind of upper standing. But she also has kind of a sordid past. It seems like she may have had what is described as a mulatto child. So a child with someone who is not white out of wedlock, you know, in her earlier days. We don't know a lot about it. It's one of those things where, again, it's like almost impossible to find information about it because it's a line. It's one line in one document that you see and then nobody mentions it again, you know. So she kind of has this spotty record. She's also known for being, for lack of a better phrase, really annoying. She's an interesting transitional figure in a way, um, which is what some historians will argue from the first three women who were perfect scapegoats to somebody who is a member of the church but she's a controversial member of the church. And that kind of makes it easier to start accusing people like Rebecca Nurse, you know, like the other upstanding members of society, some of the richest people in Salem. Mary English and her husband Philip English ended up getting accused of witchcraft, and they fled, so they made it out alive because they had enough money to bribe a jailer. But um, it gets to a point where suddenly anybody can be accused of witchcraft. The court transcripts of the Salem witch trials read like a Jacqueline Suzanne novel. The afflicted girls were allowed into each trial, and the court accepted spectral evidence, which is evidence based on dreams and visions, which hasn't been allowed ever since, or really ever before. So the girls had officially gone wild. This is not a courtroom like we would imagine today. The afflicted are all in the room screaming the entire time the trial is going on. Um, and this has a lot to do with what we talked about earlier with the charter. So this is the part of history where you always tend to lose people because it's boring, legal history, names, dates, the kind of thing that everybody tunes out when they're in high school. But the charter being lost is like, the it's the biggest deal. It makes everything that happens in 1692 possible because with no charter when the afflictions start and they technically get awarded a charter in 1691 but it doesn't get on the ground in massachusetts to the colony until may of 1692 while they're waiting for the charter they can't prosecute any of these people they can't they can bring them into pre-trial examinations they can start examining people and gathering evidence which is a lot of the records that we have today but they can't formally put them into a courtroom and really try them until May. So May is when you start to see the games begin. But now they have a charter, they still have to rewrite their legal system. That doesn't mean that they're just snap able to do it. So people have to be appointed to new positions. Everything has to shift around a little bit. So what they do is because they've got so many people who are in jail by this point, um, dozens and dozens of people have been accused or named and are starting to fill up the jails. They create an emergency court, which is called the Court of Oyer and Terminer, which means to hear and to determine. And so this court is operating, the way it's described is to the best of their ability. You know, they're really arguing about what is witchcraft? These conversations they've been having for hundreds of years. You know, how can you prove someone is a witch? How do we convict someone for witchcraft? Now, previously, it had actually been really hard to convict someone of witchcraft. You had to have a lot of evidence. Now, obviously, evidence, you know, with quotation marks, because there can't be real evidence of this because no one is actually committing this crime. But, you know, they had to have some pretty strict standards of evidence. But in Oyer and Terminer, the evidence that they're allowing for conviction is spectral evidence, which had not been allowed in any other court and would not be allowed in any court after this. 
So spectral evidence is essentially the idea that I can be sitting in a courtroom, I can fall to the ground screaming, look up at the ceiling and point and say, I see the specter of Rebecca Nurse, which is essentially the ghost of Rebecca Nurse. I see her specter. She's hurting me. You can't see her, but I can see these teeth marks in my arm. They came from her, and that's how I know she's a witch. And that was being used as evidence to convict people. So many people were getting cried out against. So many people were in jail. They felt like they just needed to start prosecuting. And they they jumped the gun, and they had they decided kind of irrationally to go ahead with spectral evidence. But there are people who are writing to the courts and magistrates saying, don't do it, don't use spectral evidence. So that is kind of a comfort in a way. You know, this isn't a time when everybody's completely lost their mind. Saying the town of Salem was on edge at this point seems to be an understatement. And since judges were acting like referees at a New York Patriots game and kept changing the rules as they saw fit, I couldn't help but wonder, how did this all actually come to an end? And bravo, Mark, for that amazing sports reference. Well, there's a lot of things that happen. So, I mean, Salem specifically, you kind of get to a point where so many people are starting to doubt the trial. So many people know someone who's been accused. It's about 150 people who are in jail at this point. One of the big things that stops the trials is Governor Phipps, who's the governor of Massachusetts at this time. His wife gets named as a witch, and he's kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. I know my wife isn't a witch, so if she could have been named, that means that maybe other innocent people have been named. We have to reassess the way this court is running. So that's really one of the big things that stopped the Salem witch trials in 1692 in that particular case. But if you're looking at Europe, it's again a bigger, more complicated story. But the big thing is really the scientific revolution and the age of enlightenment. So the scientific revolution is really kicking off in the mid-18th century. And the scientific revolution is all about fact-based inquiry and reason and logic. And so it just becomes harder and harder to prove someone is a witch. America has a deep-rooted history of cultural wrongdoings. One that pisses me off on a weekly basis is the fact that Elizabeth Montgomery was never awarded an Emmy for Bewitched. This simply must be rectified. She is, after all, America's favorite witch. So I'm also an avid fan of Elizabeth Montgomery. Love Bewitched very passionately. She, one of the things about uh, Salem in the modern day is that uh, after the trials were over, uh, this was, you know, it was embarrassing. People were shocked, horrified, embarrassed. There was this kind of general feeling that something had gone wrong with the trials. Innocent people had died. So the idea is just kind of leave it alone. We're not going to talk about it anymore and we're going to move on. And that's basically what happens for hundreds of years. It ends up having a um, large maritime trade that becomes kind of the foundation in Salem. So by the time we get to the 20th century, People haven't really been talking about the Salem Witch Trials. Um, you know, it's definitely published in books. Like, there, there is information about it, but no one's coming to Salem because of the way of Salem Witch Trials. That's starting in the early 20th century. The tourism industry is starting here. The House of the Seven Gables is established around the turn of the century. And so uh, people are kind of starting to show up and say, hey, where were the witches executed? I'm here on vacation anyway. And I've heard about this vaguely, but there is no institution that's teaching about the Salem Witch Trials. So it's really, honestly, when it's a combination of Arthur Miller writing The Crucible, gets people really interested in the Salem Witch Trials, 
And then when Bewitched films their Salem series here in the 1960s, that really gets people's attention of Salem, witches, the connection, innocent witches, good witches, all of these things start to get combined together. And that's when tourism just starts to explode in Salem. And our museum was actually founded in 1972. So we were the first institution that was supposed to be a place to teach about the Salem witch trials to people who were coming here and didn't know anything about it. And that's what we do to this day. Um, we've gotten a little bit more elaborate as time has gone on. But I mean, I think there's obviously a lot of controversy about we have a statue of Elizabeth Montgomery that TV Land put here in the 90s. But when the statue was erected, people felt very uncomfortable about it because they were like, you know, the Salem witch trials are a serious event in history. This is inappropriate, and there's a lot of back and forth. Who on earth would be uncomfortable by Elizabeth Montgomery's presence? Unless it's that nosy Gladys Kravitz. Well, I'm sorry, but she made me furious, and I had to get it off my chest. You know, and the way that she, you know, presented witches as good figures, you know, and the way that she starts to draw attention to witches in the modern day, I think it... You know, Salem's industry today has everything to do with Elizabeth Montgomery. Yeah. She's the one who got people interested in the Salem witch trials again. Again, a lot of that credit does have to go to Arthur Miller, too. I think Elizabeth Montgomery deserves her place in our history. Elizabeth Montgomery, America's hero. Anywho, people's fascination with the Salem witch trials continues to this day. And I believe it's because it just seems so insane that this ever happened in the first place. How could an angry mob attack people they collectively decided they didn't like. What is this, fucking Twitter? But part of the fascination is the simple truth that we'll never really know why these girls began their accusations. For a time, many historians believed that the girls were infected with ergot, which is a fungus in grains and cereals, and can cause people to hallucinate. Now, I've tripped on acid a time or two before myself, and I've certainly never accused anyone of being a witch. I did lick a wall once thinking it was ice cream, but everyone survived. So the ergot theory is, it's something that kind of haunts the historians of the Salem witch trials, because this was a theory that was proposed in the 1970s. The idea that the girls had ingested this fungus that grows on rye or wheat, and they were having basically hallucinogenic effects. And that's why they were accusing people of witchcraft. This theory, however, gets debunked almost immediately in the historical community. It, it never gains traction. And it really doesn't make sense if you really start to zoom in on what happened. Because if it was ergot poisoning, this would have been something that it would have been infecting the family's bread. So everybody would have been eating the same bread. So it wouldn't have just been like one girl in a household, two girls. It would have been everybody. See in the trials, the girls turning the behavior on and turning it off as you get on later. They're falling into the fits when it's convenient. Um, this is kind of later on in the trials when things have gotten completely out of control. But again, if it was a poisoning, it wouldn't be like that. It would be, you, you know, you'd be having these symptoms at any point during the day. And then people are getting better as soon as the person that they think is afflicting them gets, acute, uh, gets arrested. So it really doesn't work with the ergot theory. Ergot may have been involved in some of the European accusations, people ingesting a substance like that and thinking that they're flying through the night and things like that. That could get you accused of witchcraft, you know, that, so that it's possible it was involved in Europe, but definitely not in Salem. So then that leads us to the question of 
why are the girls experiencing the affliction at all in Salem? Which is the question that we are never going to know the answer to. So we can take our best guesses as historians. The theory that is most popular, I would say, at this time, and the one that I personally believe in, is something called conversion disorder, which is essentially the idea that when a person is under enough psychological stress, they will essentially have a mental breakdown, a psychotic break where they'll start experiencing behavior that's very similar to what Abigail and Betty were experiencing at the very beginning of the trials. I mean, that would make sense because they're living in Reverend Paris's house. They're getting the worst of it because they're Reverend Paris's wards. So um, all of these things together may have caused them to just have these like psychotic breaks. And that's what their initial afflictions are. But then as more and more girls get it, involved in it more and more of their neighbors it's possible that they were really frightened by whatever it is whether it's the threat of native americans Um, some of these girls did have ptsd from the native american attack some of them had witnessed their families being murdered Um, you know they're dealing with a lot of stuff that you know it's hard to deal with today when we have psychology and we have you know ways of dealing with it in 1692 when that you're told to just pray and you'll get better I do really believe that the the initial circle of girls, the initial afflictions were out of control. They weren't doing it on purpose. This was this real shocking, scary symptoms. But then as time goes on, they're being listened to by adults. They're having power that they will never have, you know? And then they're also in this circle of their peers who, if you say, wait a second, I thought this was true at one point, but I no longer believe in it, which... Some of them did. Uh, Mary Warren, who was John Proctor's servant, did do that. She says, I don't believe in this. I I think I was mistaken. Um, I was wrong, and I don't want to be involved anymore. Then the circle of girls around her turn on her, accuse her of witchcraft. She ends up in jail with the people she put in jail because she accused them. So, you know, it's kind of a you're with us or you're against us situation as things are starting to get more and more out of control. So it's a combination of a lot of things. There's, Ergot would be great if it was the explanation because it's this one really easy explanation. You know, in reality, it's just a lot of factors that converge. And as um, Tad Baker says, it's this perfect storm. As if I wasn't already terrified by large groups of teenage girls. Oof. I asked Rachel why she thought we were still so fascinated with the Salem witch trials over 300 years later. Um, There's just kind of this tendency to be fascinated by the macabre, by ghosts and spirits and witches and learning about a time when people really truly believed in witches and in fairies and in, you know, all of these mythical things that we kind of laughingly talk about today. I think there's this just like, cultural fascination with with that genre that's why we're so obsessed with halloween as a culture you know we love the spooky scary supernatural so i think that in reality when you start digging into the salem witch trials a lot of people are kind of shocked because they're not expecting it to be what it was but then you kind of get into the mystery of it it's a real a real life mystery you know historians are really honestly history detectives if you really look at it it's one of those things where salem has these two parts the like kind of whimsical aspect of witchcraft that we affiliate it with today and then the kind the serious frightening piece that is this mob mentality where you're looking at a society where people 
can turn on their friends and their neighbors and the people they've known their whole lives and kill them and execute them. It's these two things that are just absolutely fascinating to try to unpack. And I think it's both of them equally that keep pulling us in. I had one final yet very important question for Rachel. Is your favorite musical Wicked? (laughs) Yeah, actually it is. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to be learned about from the Salem Witch Trials, but I think most importantly, it's a reflection of how our society's continued use of scapegoats always leads to dire consequences and how mob mentality leads us to dangerous places especially if Twitter's involved. One of the most important reasons we study history is so that we can learn from our past mistakes and try to emulate our greatest achievements again. If we don't recognize the mistakes of our past, we're destined to recreate them in the future, especially if social media is involved. I'd like to thank Rachel Christ from the Salem Witch Museum for being my very spooky special guest. If you'd like to learn more about the Salem Witch Museum, go to www.salemwitchmuseum.com or find them on social media at Salem Witch Museum. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe. And if you really like us, be sure to give us five stars and literally tell everyone you know. You can follow us on social media at History Buffs Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And I would like to remind everyone that our original music is composed by the wonderful Darian Shulman and all of our artwork is done by John Wynn. Their social media handles are in the episode notes. I'm your host, Mark Brendan Rosenberg. This has been another episode of Fucked Up History, and I hope to see you again next week.